The reading this morning is taken from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, good morning, folks. I hope you're doing well. I just want you to imagine for a moment that you are a multi-millionaire. Congratulations. How does it feel? Maybe you've made your money out of football or music, or maybe you're that guy who started Amazon or Facebook. But however you got your money, you're now sitting on pots of cash. What are you going to do with it? Well, you rush out and you buy a fancy car and a great big new home and that holiday villa in the Bahamas that you've always dreamed of and the speedboat and jet ski to go with it. But you are still sitting on loads of cash, more than you know what to do with. So you decide to give some of it away to your old school or university to benefit the next generation. Two million pounds, no less. Wow, that is big. And as you sit down to write the check, you're probably thinking to yourself, they're gonna be amazed at this, so thankful. They're probably gonna name a science block or a library after me. Then you send off the check in the post and you wait for weeks. You check the mail, nothing comes. You check your phone, there's no phone call. You check your emails. Mm, zip, nada, nothing. 
You peek out the curtains, waiting for the taxi to come round the corner to collect you, to take you to that great big VIP lunch in your honour, to thank you for your amazing generosity. But it doesn't come. Now, if you can imagine that, then you can imagine the true story I heard of a guy who wrote a cheque for £700,000 to the college that he went to university at in Cambridge. And he did receive a letter of thanks and an invite to a VIP lunch in his honour. And at the end of that lunch, he said to one of the folks who was hosting him, he said, well, this had been so lovely, not least because I have given three times as much to another organisation. And I know that they've cashed the cheque because it's gone out of my account. And it's been six months now and I still haven't heard a word of thanks. <sighs> folks, do you get that? over two million pounds and not even sight or sound of a thank you. According to Shakespeare, one of the cruelest expressions of human selfishness is the failure to say thank you. And one of his tragedies, King Lear, is written as an expression of that thought. In it, the king gives away his noble titles and his properties to his three daughters and then finds himself hopelessly reduced to poverty and homelessness as they cruelly and callously reject and betray him. In gratitude, thou marble-hearted fiend, shouts King Lear. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. I know that some of you have experienced that. You've poured your life out for your children. You've given them everything, and yet they take the gifts and ignore you, the giver. And folks, I think it is all too easy for us also to do the same with God, our Father. Which is why it's so great. I think it's, it's why King David writes this psalm, Psalm 103. He, he reminds himself, he, he sits down to tell himself to say thank you. That's how the psalm begins and ends, doesn't it? Verse 1, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Then right at the end, verse 22, Bless the Lord, O my soul. David, he's talking to himself here, isn't he? That might sound... A little bit strange to you, doesn't it? But I think we all do that. We, we go around with this constant internal dialogue going on in our heads. Information comes in about issues and, and, and relationships and, and we, we mutter away to ourselves about them in our heads. Or is that just me? Am I the only one? Oh, I don't think so. We all do it. And David is doing it here to remind himself of the things he needs to hear. He prods himself, he stirs himself, he says, come on, David, thank the Lord. And he commits himself not to be a thankless child. As he gives 17 reasons to be thankful. 17! Talk about a catalogue of gratitude. 17 benefits not to be forgotten. 17 reasons why he and you and I should praise the Lord. And please note in this psalm, from beginning to end, there is not one request. No, he just stops and says, 
Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And the first thing he says thank you for is what God has done. I mean, uh, look at these verbs in verses 1 to 5. Verse 3, he, he forgives, he heals. Verse 4, he redeems and crowns. Verse 5, he satisfies. Uh, now, David, he was no kind of easily impressed, gooey-eyed goon. Oh, thank you, Lord, you're so amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, no, he was a superstar of his day. People sang songs about him. Such was the level of his fame and his gifting. He had been given so, so much. And yet, with this kaleidoscope of things to give thanks to God for in front of him, the first thing he thanks God for is in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity. That's the first one. 17 reasons, that's the first one. Because it's the foundational one. You can have everything else in the world, folks. But if you do not have your sins forgiven, then it counts for nothing. Because sin corrupts our lives and our whole world. That's why the world is the way it is. Because it is crippled by our sin. So what is sin? It is the permanent desire to rid the soul of God. It's not simply doing bad things. It's doing the ultimate bad thing in taking all of God's gifts and then living and acting as if he isn't there. That's what sin is. And yet the Bible tells us, the Bible promises us, from God, promises us that our sins can be forgiven. But not only that, that he wants to heal us and deal with the corrupting power of sin in our lives as he sets about healing us and our whole world. Now, ultimately, that will only happen when we get to heaven, to the new heaven and the new earth. But we do get glimpses of it today. And it's expressed positively and negatively in verse 4, where God redeems your life from the pit. Yes, but more than that, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now, the picture here is from ancient Rome. Where a wealthy man, if he didn't have a son to inherit his estate, would adopt a slave to be his heir. So imagine yourself for a slave as a moment. You're being sold off with a whole bunch of other slaves. You have lived your life in permanent fear for years because displeasing your, per your, your master could see you put to death in an instant. And you're now bound up in chains that are rubbing against your, your wrists and your ankles. And you've been dropped in a pit to await to see what kind of tyrant your next master might be. But then suddenly the slave master runs up and he looks into the pit and he picks you out. And he says, good news, some fool with more money than sense has redeemed you. <laughs> Incredible, you've been set free. So you're lifted out of the pit and the, the chains are taken off. Oh, it's, it's like a, a weight being lifted off you, the euphoria to be saved and redeemed. But, but, but there's more. As you look, the guy who has paid for your freedom is, is walking towards you. And, and incredibly, it's, 
it's, it's the emperor himself. And he, he puts a crown on your head and, and a, a purple robe around your shoulders. Oh, I mean, you've just been in a dirty, rat-infested pit. I mean, he shouldn't even come near you, let alone touch you. But he puts his arm around you and he leads you off and he takes you back to the palace and he says, welcome home, my child. This is now your home. You are a part of the royal family and everything I have is yours. Redeemed, but more than that, crowned. Now for the Old Testament readers of this Psalm, they would have looked back to their exodus, their people's exodus from Egypt for their deliverance. But for us, we look to Jesus and his death on the cross. I mean, we have this permanent desire to rid ourselves of God and his authority. We know it, we do. But yet he sends his son to die for us. Not only to forgive us, but then he sends his spirit to change us from the inside out. And the question therefore for us today, this morning is, just how conscious are we of what Jesus has done for us? He is like the rich man at the slave auction, paying the price so that we can not only go free, but more than that, be crowned with steadfast, ongoing, forever love. Folks, as I've reflected on this psalm, as I've spent time reading it and meditating on it, I've just been reminded afresh by God of just the depth of my sin, the reality of it. There's so many things that I have done that I would be ashamed to say to the camera, to say to you this morning. Things I've done and thought and said, even this week. And I've been made really conscious that actually because of that, the ground should open up in front of me at any moment. Romans 6 verse 23 says, the penalty for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's staggering that the creator of the world could tolerate me for one minute more. And he doesn't just obliterate me immediately. Instead, he sends his son to die for me. It is staggering. And yet, from moment to moment, from day to day, just how conscious am I of that? Not much. But I, I've been saying to myself this week, and I want to say this morning and every morning, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for this gift. In fact, I, I think we should just take a leaf out of David's book and stop and do that right now, don't you? to just stop and say thank you and, and sing together. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's what we're going to do. We're going to just take a moment to sing together and then we're going to come back and do the rest of this psalm. So let's stand and praise the Lord with our, all of our souls just now. Let's stand and sing. Well, if you've been standing, then please do take a seat, folks. We've seen so far, David has been thanking God firstly for 
what he has done. And then the rest of this psalm, he uh, gives thanks to God for, secondly, who he is. What is this God like who has been so kind to us? Well, in verses 8 to 10, David shows us that God is unbelievably patient. Folks sometimes say to me that they don't like reading the Old Testament because in it, God always seems to be angry. But let me just say, he is not. Do you see in verse 8, he is slow to anger. He has every reason to be angry with us because of the way that we have treated him. Yet he puts limits on his anger. You see, God's anger is not like ours. He doesn't fly off the hook and lose his temper. No, his anger is his settled, measured, controlled hostility towards all that is evil. And so therefore it is prompted, it's brought into existence by something outside of his own character. That is our sin. His anger isn't part of his, it's not an eternal attribute of his character, like his love is. Because there was a day before the world was made uh, when uh, there was no anger in the heart of God because there was no sin in us because we hadn't been made yet. And there is coming a time, uh, uh, the end of time, in the new heaven and the earth, new earth, when uh, there will be no more anger, nothing to provoke God to anger anymore because we will sin no more. And so verse 9 tells us that God won't keep his anger forever. And surely as we read this, we're supposed to see the contrast with ourselves. What about us? Are we slow to anger? Are we abounding in love towards others? Well, Carling, the ex-captain of the England rugby team, wrote this in his autobiography. If someone does something against me, What I do is I file it. I just put it in a file. And then I pull it out at some point when I need it in the future. That's really honest, isn't it? And I wonder if it describes us. We may even be a Christian, and yet still, we we keep grievances going and, and quarrels rumbling on. But God doesn't. And at what cost does he not do that? As he sends his son to pay for our sin. And he encourages us likewise to bear the cost of forgiveness for others. In Colossians 3 verse 13, he tells us, forgive. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Oh, how the world, how we need this characteristic of God, this forgiveness. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And neither should we treat others as their sins deserve, but be overflowing in godlike forgiveness to them. What about you today? Who do you need to reach out and to forgive in this way? For verses 11 to 12, make it really clear that God does not hold grudges. As David writes, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. A number of years ago, uh, when I was living in Edinburgh, uh, the folks I lived with and myself, we had a certain young lady who I'm now married to. 
and some of her uni friends round for Sunday lunch. And after lunch, we decided to go for a walk by the sea. And uh, because I liked this young lady and I knew she um, liked Frisbee and wanted to impress her, I borrowed a friend's aerobi so we could throw that around. Now I know an aerobi is a totally different beast to a frisbee, not least in terms of the ridiculous distances that it goes. Uh, and I think that might be why my friend warned me about the dangers of playing with it by the sea uh, before we set off. And so you've probably guessed by now how this story ends and you'd be right. Sure enough, one of Fiona's friends sent up this wild, optimistic throw and the wind just took it. I mean, this is Edinburgh after all, it's always windy. The wind took it and it went and it went and it went and it went and it landed a, a, a preposterous, unrescuable distance out to sea. So that we didn't even bother standing at the shore and waiting for the waves to wash it back in because we knew it was gone. And folks, I want you to know that when God removes our sins, as he promises to do in these verses here in Psalm 103, likewise, we are not to watch and wait for our sins to be washed back in by the tide. I think some of us do that. I think many of us do that. And we know intellectually we're forgiven, but we're pretty sure we're gonna, our sins are gonna, gonna wash back up on the shore. They're gonna come back, they're not forgotten. God will bring them back up at an appropriate time. So, so think about that thing that profoundly sits on your conscience, that sin that really troubles you. No one else knows about it, but oh boy, you can't get it out of your mind. Please see that God takes it and he puts it in a metal box and he wraps it in chains and he dumps it over the farthest horizon. Can you see that sin, those sins disappearing over the horizon? Please see that because God sent his son to die for you. Just as the east, uh, just as you can't see the east from the west. So when God looks at us, he can't see our sins. And when he's looking at our sins, he doesn't see us. He has put them out of sight, out of mind. And because of the fullness, the, the completeness of God's forgiveness, it makes him accessible all the time. As verse 13 declares, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Folks, I think we spent a lot of time in our lives putting up boundaries so that people can make limited demands of us, but not so with God. There are no boundaries with him. Do you see that here? Just as there are no boundaries for a child as it wakes up, crying in the middle of the night with its, with its father at three in the morning. So there are no boundaries between us and God, our Father, at any time, day and night. And that reassurance, it's not time limited. It doesn't have an expiry date because as David goes on in verse 17, he shows us that God's character is eternal. Once again, I want us to see the, this incredible contrast between us and, and God. And if you are part of this church family here at St. Joseph's, 
Hold on to your seats here because these are the verses that are going to be read out at your funeral. So best to get them in place now. I'm not being flippant about that. These verses are the anchor that helps us to face up to our death. I mean, what are we like? Verse 14. We are, we're dust. Do you see? We're, we're, like, we're like dust. One day you will be able to hoover us up. And then verse 15. Again, do you see? We're, we're like grass. Our lives are so fragile and fleeting. They're, they're like the grass of the field. Uh, so that oh, one day we're just going to be <gasps> blown away. And sadly, these verses, folks, they give us one of the main reasons why we don't remember those facts. Why we ignore them and turn our backs on God here in Britain. It's because we're flourishing. The Lord in his kindness has allowed us to flourish. He lavishes great gifts on us. Uh, but in our flourishing, we say, well, who needs God? Religion? Well, it's a great handrail for the non-copus. There's some brilliant stories for the kids, but it's not for me. But our flourishing is over so quickly. Do you see? Verse 16. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. So our loved ones may treasure our memory when we're gone, but they too one day will die. We may achieve notable things in life. We'll build businesses and forge careers and maybe even write books. But businesses come and go. Careers fade and books go out of print. Even the names on our graves will one day be rendered indecipherable by the wind and the rain. And its place knows it no more, says the psalmist. So think of your home now. I'm assuming that's where you're watching at the moment. But it's your place. It's your sofa. It's your seat. It's your table. It's your bed. But let me just say in that place, that place which is your very own. One day someone will be there and they won't even recognize that you were ever there. Now I know what you're thinking. After the service you're thinking, I'm gonna put up a plaque, or at the very least, I'm gonna, you're gonna chisel your initials into every surface you can find, but it won't work. Everything about us will one day be forgotten. Now contrast that with God. I mean, the contrast is, is so marked here in verse 17, is it not? But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The world may forget you. The world will forget you. But if you put your hand in God's, then you will never be forgotten. For his love is from everlasting to everlasting. So when you trust in him, and, and, and verse 18, when you seek to keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, you will never be forgotten by him as he wraps his arms around you for all eternity. Okay, so how are we to respond to these incredible truths? I've got one application for us as we finish. In fact, I've already mentioned it a number of times. 
Loads of times I've mentioned it. I hope you've got it by now. We, we know the application here, don't we? Give thanks. Give thanks to God for what he's done, for who he is, for all his benefits. I mean, say to God, Lord, thank you. I, I'm just grass, I'm dust. And yet you have set your love upon you, upon me. Lord, thank you so much. And in the short time that you're still here, while you still have breath in your lungs, why don't you ask God to help you to speak and to sing his praises? In word and deed, with everything you've got, ask him to help you to so live out and proclaim his character that others might see the wonders of his grace. <sighs> that the lost may be found, that the spiritually dead may be raised to life again. That whole families may know his forgiveness and communities be transformed by his great love. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Will you say that prayer, a prayer like that in your own words? And commit yourself to declare his praises every day with every breath that he gives you. Even when you don't feel like it. In fact, especially when you don't feel like it. I think it's those mornings when we woke up with groans and not gratitude on our heart towards God. It's then that we especially need to, to like David, the psalmist, talk to ourselves to say, soul, come on, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that is within me, praise his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's just stop again now. And we're going to sing in a minute, but let's first pray. We're going to have a moment of, uh, to, to just stop and pray and bring to mind all of the things we have to give thanks God to God for, to count our blessings. Let's stop and pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.